And if you would turn in your Bibles this evening to Genesis chapter 36. Now is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. So there wasn't Esauites, <laughs> there were Edomites. And it'll say that again in verse 19. It'll say it again in verse 43. Um, it's very important, you know, that those of Esau's tribe were named Edomites. I don't know why it's so important, but it is important. Now, this genealogy, interesting, where did it come from? You know, we just finished off chapter 35, and the last thing there was Isaac's death. And both of the boys were there. And I know when I get all my family together at a family reunion, I often don't know some of them. Some of them because they've just grown in three or four or five years. Don't recognize them. And of course, uh, you know, you, you talk to them, right? And say, hey, tell me about your marriage, your kids, you know. And, and, uh, and of course, genealogic records like this would have no doubt been brought because they were all Bedouins, so they had everything with them. So um, at this time where Jacob was living and Edom were living, they occupied a big part of the same area uh, in southern Israel, um, right outside of Bethlehem, a bit of a ways. And as we go on, it appears that Esau at that time was sometime in the area of Seir, which is the country of Jordan today. And it's uh, south of the Dead Sea and then east a little bit. So right on the, not too far from the Dead Sea there, but, but a bit of ways, about 70 miles. And uh, it's most famously known today for the rock city of Petra. And, uh, and that was a part of that area of Seir. So it seems that they did spend part of the time together over the years mingling with the Edomites and the Israelites until things started expanding. So I think Jacob, most commentators believe that chapter 35 through chapter 37 was actually written by Jacob. And there's some reasons for that. But we have a real abbreviated... Uh, genealogy of Jacob in chapter 35, where he just mentions his 12 sons. And, uh, and then he focuses on a very lengthy chapter on Esau's lineage. And again, I just want to say that just because Esau wasn't chosen to be the lineage of the Messiah didn't minimize him in the eyes of God. And I think these genealogies show it. And I might mention this is not the last genealogy of Esau. In 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 35 to 42, they have another good-sized genealogy of Esau. And, um, and so Esau also um, was somebody that was blessed by God and, and going to be blessed by God. His dad even said so. And so, again, the idea that, that God hates everybody who's not the chosen... <laughs> and only loves the chosen, it's, it's abominable, but it's also very, very wrong. Um, and so Jacob, I believe, 
writes down word for word what was in the genealogy of Esau. And the reason I say that, because as we look at verse 2 and 3, it gives us the three wives of Esau. But when you compare the names in chapter 26, verse 34, and chapter 28, verse 9, you'll discover all three of the wives' names have changed. There could be a number of reasons for that. Uh, one, as they were sort of immigrating into another region, um, their, their names are changed for a lot of reasons. Um, I can tell you that having traveled the world, I've heard people's names and their offensive words in the English, <laughs> but yet that's their name and, uh, and other such things. But also when women had kids, their, their names were changed. So we see through the book of Genesis, Abraham is Abraham, Sarai is Sarah, um, Jacob became Israel, Simon became Peter, and Saul became Paul. It's not that uncommon. But, um, you know, those who are, believe the Bible's full of heirs, that they try, like to use this one as, as one of those heirs, but it's nonsensical. And even um, Ahola Bama daughter, it says is Hena, his name was even different. It was Barry before uh, in verse, chapter 6, verse 34. So there you can read, there's several books on it, uh, Supposed Contradiction of the Bible, um, Why Critics Ask by Geisler, and uh, of course Morris's commentary on the Genesis record. All of them go in and show the different reasons that the names are different. But I, again, I think that Jacob wrote it down accurately from what they had. And do make a note in verse 3 that his third wife later, remember he, he first married the first Canaanite women, and, uh, and then it grieved his mother greatly. And so he thought, I'll fix that. I'll go marry an Ishmaelite, <laughs> somebody from Ishmael's line. That'll fix the problem. I'm going to be happy with her. Had, he had no spiritual um, abilities but it makes it clear that it just wasn't one of the daughters of Ishmael, but it was a daughter of Ishmael's oldest son, Nebajoth. Nebajoth was Ishmael's number one son, and with this society that does protogenders, no doubt he was the chief. Uh, the time he probably uh, married um, this gal, Ishmael would have been a very old man. Um, but his number one son, who's probably the main guy over the great kingdom now of the Ishmaelites, his daughter is who Esau marries. So basically, his third wife was married into royalty. That's sort of the inclination. So each time it talks about that, it always points out um, that his, it was the sister, not, not the daughter, but the sister of, of uh, Ishmael's number one son. Now, as we go on, it's, it makes it clear that these three ladies, while they were in the land of Canaan, they were in the promised land, had bore him these sons. It says at the end of verse five. The reason that's important, because it's going to change at the end in verse eight. We're going to have a list of the sons he had when he was in Mount Seir. But at this point, they're, they're sort of commingling 
around the area where Isaac lived and Isaac died and, and uh, they were all sharing the land. They were all nomads going where the green, there was grass for their sheep and so forth. But in verse 6 and 7, it says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to the country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Why? Verse 7, For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. And so... Same thing happened with Abraham and Lot, right? That it got so prosperous, the land couldn't handle all the animals to feed them all. So he finally makes the full permanent move uh, across uh, the boundary, the national boundary line of Israel into what's Jordan today, uh, the the southern part, um, Eden. And so, uh, again, he tells us for a second time here, that is Esau, who is Edom. That's what they called him. So, we say, oh, Esau, but pretty much after he ate the red stew. <laughs> Do you guys remember that? Him and, and Jacob in Genesis 25, 30, it said after he ate the Jacob red stew and sold his birthright, after that, everybody called him Edom. So Esau, most of his life, never heard people call him Esau. Most of his life, he was called Edom. And... Um, and so if you said, hey, I'm looking for Esau, uh, we don't have, know any Esau. Oh, I'm looking for Edom. Oh, yeah, he lives over there. Um, so they're just trying to make that clear. So this is, in verse 9, the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. And then he goes on to give the names of his sons that were born now in that area of the world. Um, it does make in a point in verse 12, now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek. The Amalekites are going to be one of the front and center enemies of Israel. Remember uh, the first battle in Exodus 18? We'll be seeing that. Um, it was the Amalekites, and God said, we're going to be fighting these Amalekites forever. The book of Esther um, the horrible villain in that story was um, from Amalek. So they're sort of making it clear here. He wasn't a legitimate grandson of Esau's. <laughs> yeah, these Amalekites, they really were evil group of people. But it was through a concubine, not through one of his actual wives. Just to make that clear. Um, and then we skip on down to verse 15. And he says, now here were the chiefs. The word chief, can, it's translated in many different ways. I love the old King James that says dukes, you know. But it literally is a Hebrew word that means over thousands. So these, these were the upper echelon, if you would, of the royalty. And he gives all those names. And in verse 19, he says again, these are the sons of Esau, who is Edom? Don't forget. Um, these were their chiefs. Now, um, in verse 20, it's interesting that he's now going to talk about the sons of Seir. In other words, the other people groups that were there that weren't from Esau. So when he went to Mount Seir, it sounds like they all just intermingled as one people. But Ishmael was the main, or Esau was the main guy, so they were mainly called Edomites, 
But a lot of the Edomites weren't from Esau. That doesn't seem to bother them whatsoever. They're just, they got bigger and better really quick. And so he begins to name the various sons of um, main people who were also now sort of adopted in to the household of Edom, if you would, even though they were Hororites and, and other people groups. Now, this is something that Esau is very proud of in verse 31, the kings of Edom. Now, he's going to make this a very clear point in verse 31. Now, these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before the king reigned over the children of Israel. It wouldn't be hundreds and hundreds of years before Israel would ever have a king. So, in essence, in their genealogy, they're saying, hey, I may not have been the son of promise, but we had kings. We had advanced as a society hundreds of years quicker than Israel ever did. That was the point here. And so it gives a list of the various people who reigned as kings. Uh, not one, but several kings. It was a large kingdom. And then in verse 40, and these were the names of the chiefs of Esau. And he gives a list of those chiefs. They're all called chief. And at the end of verse 43, these were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling place and the land of their possessions. Esau was the father of the Edomites. <laughs> Let's not forget that. Boyce in his commentary says something I just think is really eloquent. He says, if God blesses so abundantly those who are not chosen, what is the magnitude of his blessings for those who are chosen? If non-spiritual people experience such outpourings of merely common grace, how great must be the special great grace of the regenerate be? So I, I think it's a, a, it's a very good point, but that's what we observe here. We observe God's blessings on Esau. And we are to take note that Jacob is saying, yeah, that's my brother, I'm proud of him. Well, in chapter 37, we begin a new and final section of Genesis where we're going now into the life of Joseph, except for next week. <laughs> next week is a wild and crazy story. It was similar to chapter 34, the story of Dinah and she got raped and, and all that craziness. And you're just like, yeah, let's go to the next chapter. You're going to feel that way after next week too. Uh, but it's a very important because right at the very beginning of the New Testament, you've got to know who uh, uh, the tribe of Judah and, of course, Tamar and, and all of the story to know that this is an important part of Jesus' genealogy. But we start here now uh, in the life of Joseph. It's basically 12 chapters between here and now, chapter 50. And <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I would like to... to, to Make a mention before we start into this life of Joseph. Again, Boyce in his commentaries, he says, speaking of Joseph, he was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted and abased. <laughs> Yet at no point in 110 years of life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not ruin him. 
He was the same in private as in public. He was a truly great man. Joseph never complained, and he never compromised. Joseph is always a remarkably powerful picture of Jesus. Now, that's interesting because the New Testament never says that. It never talks about Joseph as a type of Christ, as so many commentaries put. But we do have to say it is a picture of Christ in so many ways, so many commonalities this guy Joseph and Jesus had in their lifetime. And uh, we'll look at some of those as we go through. But I, I in no way make it the most important part of teaching the life of Joseph, and many, many do, but I, I don't like that personally. So we start off here. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was, stranger in the land of Canaan. And this is the history. It's the same word translated genealogy, generations, records. It's the last time it'll be used here uh, in the book of Genesis. Each time it says this is the genealogy, usually you start a new section. And, um, and so here, this is sort of the new section, but the final section of the life of Jacob. So instead, because he doesn't really give a genealogy here, they, they see this word being used more as the history. Uh, here's, here's the important stuff about Jacob. You haven't heard of it yet. And it really centers on the life of Joseph. This is what he's saying. And so Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah. Remember who? Bilah's two sons were Dan and Niphtali, and the sons of Zillah, Zilpha, which was um, Gad and Asher. So four of the boys, not any of the sons of Leah, not his brother Benjamin from Rachel, but from their two handmaids, the four sons seem to click together maybe because they were all felt maybe like they were second-class citizens because my mom is not the actual wife of Jacob. That had to have some underlining current. And they were out and about, and they were really misbehaving, evidently. And Joseph brought back a bad report of them to his father. We're going to see that there's a, a whole bunch of reasons his brother hated him. But this one seems to be that he is a goody two-shoes and uh, he is tattling. I, ne I never still have got the, the, the thing right. You know, when I didn't tell my parents, uh, my brother just set, set the field on fire. I'm in trouble that I didn't tell them. But yet I feel like had I told them, my brother just caught the field on fire, they would have said, don't you be a tattler. I, I just didn't think I ever got that one right. So I don't know, is this good or bad? Does this say something good about Joseph or bad about Joseph? Either way, we do know that it upset the brothers. Interesting, in the beginning of this chapter, it says, now Jacob dwelt, but now we start to see for the first time this pattern where sometimes God calls him Israel and sometimes God calls him Jacob, and there's a reason for it. When he's acting fleshly, not in faith, he's called Jacob. When he's walking in faith and submitted to God, his name's Israel. So at this moment, and we're going to see a change in this chapter, <laughs> but in this moment, he's called Israel. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. 
Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. Um, this is sort of nice kicking around the, the, the bush, but it's because it's Rachel's son. Rachel couldn't have kids forever and ever, and, and finally she had one. And then after, right after she gave birth to him, they traveled to the promised land uh, away from her father Laban. And um, what happened next was she got pregnant again, as we saw in the last chapter, and had the last child, Benjamin, and she died. And um, no doubt, he looked like Rachel, maybe. And his character is a very, very good character. So there were a lot of reasons to favor Joseph. Uh, when we see later Jacob laying hands and praying for each of his sons, he didn't have a whole lot to say good about anybody um, of these, these sons. So I'm sure it wasn't hard for him to not like those other sons as they've grown into being men and uh, not being very good. Um, and so he, this is not good, though, that he's showing this openly. He can secretly say, oh, um, you know, I have a favorite son or a favorite child. They can say that in their heart, but they cannot let on to the kids. That's the case. That's just wrong. Because he was the son of his old age, and he gave him this tunic. Now, this is translated many colors. This word tunic, it can also mean garment with long sleeves. Now, if you worked in the field as a laborer, you had short sleeves. But if you were the manager, then you had long sleeves and a longer robe. The longer your robe was meant that you didn't have to get, you know, get dirty and do menial labor. So it appears that Israel, Jacob, likes Joseph better, and he is sort of saying without saying that he's going to be the new protogenitor. Why? Because we just read it in the last chapter, 35 verse 22, Reuben went into his made uh, Bilhah, his stepmom, and had sexual relations with her. It just mentions that. Later when Jacob prays over Reuben, he'll let him know, man, you could have been a great man, but because you did this, you're never going to be the leader anywhere. And so in, in his mind, I think in Jacob's mind at this point, Reuben is, he's not my firstborn. I'm not going to give him um, that right because of, of this great sin and insult that he did uh, shacking up with Bilhah. And so by giving him this special jacket. So this word tunic, the first time it's used is right at the beginning of Genesis when God gave Adam and Eve this special tunic. And, it, and the next time we're going to hear this word used is the tunic for the priest, especially the high priest, Garments to worship God. The next time we hear it is 2 Samuel 13, when it talks about David's daughters having this tunic because they were virgins. So it's, it doesn't seem to be just a nice, colorful garment, although it is that. It seems to be making it clear that this is sacred holy, set aside, special. So to whatever degree they knew it at that time, it was not a tunic like anybody else in the family got, okay? No doubt it was expensive. No doubt it was colorful. No doubt it was that of a manager rather than a, a worker in the field. And, uh, 
And boy, did his brothers hate him for this as well. Notice in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So the division was already there. But after Jacob foolishly, outwardly showed that he really loved Joseph and couldn't hardly stand the other ten, um, Benjamin was a little lad at this time. We don't know how old he was, but probably very young. Um, they, they really, it really just dug deeper. And again, I think there was sort of a second class already going on with the, the children of Leah and Rachel versus the two maid, the midwives that they had or the maidservants they had. I think there was probably already a, a caste system already there amongst themselves. But this was just over the top. This just really cut them deeply and just have to say that it was very foolish, very foolish parenting. Now in verse 5, to make things worse, God jumps in here and gives Joseph a dream. And in it, behold, his brothers, they hated him even more. Um, So he said to them, please hear this dream which I've dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaves rose up and also stood upright. Indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaves. And his brother said to him, Shall shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, in this dream, it's very clear what the interpretation is. Because Joseph sees this is my sheave, and each of the other sheaves are his brother's sheaves. Now, you guys know what sheaves are? It's with wheat or barley or oak or rye. When they cut it, it's green. It's not usable quite yet. And so they usually stack it in a way that it stands up. Have you seen that before? where it, it, you, they put it at different angles, they put a ring around it and, and it, and it just sort of stands on its own and dries in the sun. So this is, this is very common. This is what it looked like to them. And his brothers, everybody knew, you're going to rule over us and, and we're going to bow down to you. And they're just like, that ain't ever going to happen. But then he has another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I've had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. And he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him. The word rebuked here is the strongest word in the entire Old Testament to be used. The only other time we see this word rebuke like this, when God is rebuking Israel, um, it's a very strong word. He, he, He laid into him. He rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So this is important here that we note that their interpretation can't be right this time. Yes, there's 11 stars. That's probably meaning the 11 brothers. But the moon and the sun, um, his mother died. (laughs) So how would his mother being dead bow down to him? Now, it could be she's not dead right now because... It was just in, in chapter 35, so they could have told the story about her dying before she actually died. Remember Genesis 10, 
where we have the genealogy and it, and it, it shows everybody scattered by languages. And of course, they only had one language until chapter 11. So chapter 10 told the history really after chapter 11, but they told it in chapter 10 anyway. So, so it could be that way. He, he could just be telling the story about how Rachel died before this happened. She, maybe she's alive at this moment. I don't think that's the case though. And besides, they got, the, they got it wrong. Now, the best way to understand the Bible is to use the Bible as a commentary, and especially when it compares. So you ask yourself, well, we're going to see three times in Genesis 42 and 43, his brothers are literally bowing down to him. They don't know it's him. He's all dressed up like an Egyptian, but they definitely are groveling and bowing down and, 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 and submitted to his authority completely. But we never see Jacob bowing down to Joseph. So in this case, even the sun and moon are bowing down. That never happened. So that's obviously not the fulfillment. So this time, their interpretation is just wrong, although they said, oh man, we're going to be bowing down. And again, this is where if you look at Joseph as a type of Christ, it does make sense. So where's the next time we we see this? It's in Revelation chapter 12, in verse 1. And clearly, we're looking at the family of Israel in the 11. What about the star and the moons and the sun? Let's look at that. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, woman, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, this woman, and we're going to see it clearly in a moment, is clearly the nation of Israel. And all through the Bible, the nation of Israel is often called the woman, a woman. For example, in Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6, for your maker is your husband, also not just called a woman, also called the wife of God. The nation of Israel is called the wife of God. But here it says in, in Isaiah 54, 5 and 6, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken, grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were, have, were refused her, says the Lord. So the woman here in chapter 12 is the nation of Israel. Going on in Revelation 12, verse 2 now. And then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. That comes right out of the book of Daniel as well. That's the Antichrist. And his tail drew a third of the stars. This is a third of the angels that warred against God with him probably before earth was created, but his tail drew the, the, the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, who is this child? It's Jesus. And even notice in the translation, the child is capitalized. And we know for certain, as we look on in verse five and six, clearly it's Jesus. She bore a male child who was to rule over all nations with a, what? Rod of iron. Clearly messianic. The only time it's ever used in the Bible is of the Messiah. 
and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, has a place prepared by God. They shall feed her there for 1,260 days, which is three and a half year period. This is when Israel at the three and a half year period reject the Antichrist and they have to flee, Jerusalem flee everywhere they're at and they hide themselves in Seir, in um, Rock City of Petra, that area. Interesting, it, it sort of all ties together. But again, the, the rod of iron, this child is gonna rule the nations and have a rod of iron. This is talking about at the end of the tribulation period. Psalms 2, clearly talking about it. You will break them with the rod of iron. Uh, Revelation 2.27, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron. And then Revelation 19.15, now out of the mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he will strike the nations and he himself will rule with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress, the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty. All three of those passages uh, are clearly referring to Jesus, the Messiah. So the actual meaning of Joseph's second dream was really a prophecy about Jesus Christ at the in the tribulation, but mainly at the end of the tribulation period. And so that was really the fulfillment. So they were all getting mad about something different, although it's sort of true because they all represent the nations of Israel. And then in verse 11, his brothers envied him or were jealous, the same word, jealous of him. His father just pondered these things in his heart. Let me tell you something. When you study through the scripture on the issue of envy or jealousy, it's heavy stuff. Um, it, it makes it clear that it's one of the worst of all evils that you will go to, that you, 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 will, you will be surprised that you go there. In other words, you're, you hate that person, you're jealous of that person, envious of that person, they're really making you matter, and, and all of a sudden, you're taking steps to stalk them, <laughs> to do weird things to them, to kill them. Um, and you didn't even see that coming in your own life. For example, in Proverbs 27.4, Wrath is cruel, anger is outrageous, but he who is able to stand, who is able to stand before envy. I like that in the old King James. In the New Living Translation, I like it even better. It says, anger is cruel, wrath is like a flood, but jealousy is even more dangerous. Joseph's brothers were angry. They hated him. They were jealous of him. They desired then, we're going to see, to murder him. In Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. And this is where I think that the person, once they get jealous and envious, it really starts causing them to go insane. I think they think they're acting rationally, but they, they can't see how irrational they're acting. Of course, we know all the stories about stalkers who have killed people and, and uh, old girlfriends that have killed people. And I, you know, again, I think that, that jealousy. So what is the answer? When those negative feelings and emotions start coming, Proverbs 17, 14 says, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contentions before the quarrel starts. So before, as soon as you have envy and you just, Lord, help me. You know, I love that Psalm. Search my heart, O oh God. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Yeah, 
as soon as that comes to mind, realize this is not a firecracker. This is a stick of dynamite. Envy will lead you down a very dark road. And we know about how don't let the sun go down on the anger unless Satan get a foothold. Interesting, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5 talks about this specifically. Love suffers long and is kind. And the first thing on the list, love does not envy. Love does not pray to self. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. So just ask God to fill your heart up with a new and greater love than you've ever known to enter your heart to overcome that envy. Well, going back to Genesis chapter 37 here, we're now in verse 12. So then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Whoa, that is a long way. They're in Hebron right now, in the valley of Hebron, which is way past Jerusalem, way past Bethlehem. It's not all the way to the very southern border uh, as you're going down to Egypt, but it's close. So they went from Hebron almost all the way, not to the Sea of Galilee, but doggone close. They went all the way to northern Israel. Now, remember, they were just in Shechem in chapter 34 in the story of Dinah. Remember that? Where they raped her and they said, oh, we want to marry her. And they're like, okay, everybody gets circumcised. And when they were all in pain, they killed, they killed everybody. And then they left Shechem because they were, but it says, God, the fear of them was on everybody. So these guys are clearly going to look for something, a place where evil people are, loose women were, where, where they could party, okay? They, they weren't really thinking about this is best for the sheep or best for the cattle. It was really what, you know, they wanted to get where there was loose living and they want to be a long ways from dad so it doesn't get back to him. So they are a very, very long ways away. And Israel said to Joseph, are you not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. I'm right and ready. And he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now, a certain man found him there, and he said, and he was wandering in the field. So he's on the edge of Shechem there, and he's cruising from one field to another to another, and he, he you know, it sounds like he's lost. And the man asked him, saying, what, what are you seeking? Just to let you know, in the, in the Hebrew writings, they believe this was an angel. I, I don't think it was. I didn't say that it was, but could have been. But either way, he said, uh, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they were feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan, which is even further north. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So later on, we're going to find Elisha. That's where he lived. Elisha, he had a, probably had a prophet school there in Dothan. And um, you guys remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 6 when the armies of Syria were going to attack Israel and, and, uh, and there, the armies of Samaria was just all on the mountains. Oh, his, his servant said, we're dead. And Elisha said, oh, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. Remember? And he saw the angels behind them. That was Dothan. 
So there you go. Keep that in reference for a later note. Now, verse 18, now when they saw him afar off, even before he came there to them, he conspired against them to kill him. And they said to one another, look at this little dreamer coming our way. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of this, his dreams. We'll see if we'll whirl over him. Interesting, the name Dothan means two pits or two wells. But it sounds like the wells didn't really happen. It was just pits. And uh, they're going to throw him in one of them in just a minute. But Reuben, in verse 21, heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, oh, no, let's not kill him. And Reuben said to them, uh, shed no blood, but just cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay hands on him. Uh, and he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to their father. So he's like, ah, oh, let's let him die slowly in a pit. But really, he was going to come back later. That was what was in his heart and save him. But it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph from his tunic. Sure enough, that's a sore spot for them. And the tunic of many colors, which was on him. And then they took him and cast him into the pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Again, a place called Two Pits. And uh, they sat down to eat a meal. Whoa. Look at how hard-hearted these guys are. Take the jacket off and rip it off, throw them down into this pit. I'm hungry. How about you? Yeah, let's eat. No conscience whatsoever. Now, here's what's interesting. It's 22 years from this point. They are going to be standing before Joseph in Egypt. And look at what they said in chapter 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, their distress was come upon us. So the whole time, their conscience was knocking, knocking, knocking. They were doing whatever they could to not let it bother them. But they remember that moment in time, how cruel they were, how hard-hearted they were, how they had a mill while Joseph was crying for help. Well, moving right along here. They sat down to eat the mill in verse 25. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was coming a company of Ishmaelites, coming from the Gilead with their camels, bearing spice, balm, myrrh, and on the way carry them down to Egypt. Now, the Bible does this a lot. You just got to get used to it. But the area of Gilead wouldn't be named <laughs> until after the Exodus, uh, 400 years uh, later, and then another you know, 40 years they die in the wilderness, and eventually the 12 tribes get their area, right? But Gilead and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, we want to live on the east side of the Jordan, which wasn't in the promised land. So just right across the Jordan River would have be eventually the land of Gilead, but they're going ahead and telling us it's Gilead now, which it wasn't that at that time. But here comes these Ishmaelites, and Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let us 
not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listen. Yeah, he is our brother. Let's have compassion. Just sell him into slavery. Oh, that's being merciful. We're, one, we're, we're so, we got such big hearts, don't we? <laughs> but then the Midianite traders passed by. So this again is where these people that want to be critical of the Bible see a contradiction here. Versus says the Ishmaelites. Now it's saying Midianites. They don't know what, who's there. No, if you just read it, it's so clear. First, they saw Ishmaelites' company. They saw a company of Ishmaelites. But as this caravan starts passing by, the time they get Joseph out of the pit, now, along with the Ishmaelites, are other groups of people. They often travel together for safety's sake. And they say, hey, we got a slave here to sell. And it happened to be now, not the Ishmaelites. They had probably already caravaned on by but now is a caravan of the Midianites who are all traveling together. Now, you remember who Midian is? Remember Abraham has his second wife, Keturah, and her six sons, Midian, was one of them. And the Midianites would become some of the fiercest enemies of Israel. Um, you, you remember the story of Gideon, of course, that was the Midianites. And then Balaam, he was hired by Moab and the Midianites. And the Midianites sent down their beautiful wives and tempted the guys to have sex. It was the Midianite women. And, uh, and there's uh, the very interesting, Moses is now um, an elderly guy, 120 years old. And, and uh, he's like, can I come to heaven now? And God said, no, no, you got one more battle. And he had to fight one more battle as an old man right before his death. It was the Midianites. And then he was able to go and be with the Lord after the final battle. So these Midianite traders, interesting. We see them here sort of just as traders, but later we're going to see them as a nation of evil, evil enemies against God's people. Well, they passed by. So the brothers pulled uh, Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him into the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not there in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is not, not, or no more, and I, where shall I go? He's like, man, I'm out of my mind. He, he's dead. He's gone. I don't. And they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a kid of goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. So it appears like Reuben didn't know he was dead, or maybe he, they let Reuben keep thinking he was dead. But either way, now, they, it's already too late. They, even if they told Reuben, yeah, we sold him to slavery. Well, what are we going to do? They all together came up with this plan. Get the tunic, kill a kid of goats, and use his blood and say that a wild animal killed him. J just want to stop here and just make a mention. They're getting ready to deceive their father. And they're using a goat. Does that sound familiar? Remember last time somebody deceived their dad with a goat? It was Jacob himself. He killed a goat, but he used the skin to make it feel like Esau's skin. And he deceived his father. Boy, the Bible's right, isn't it? You reap what you sow. But also you sow to the wind and you reap the whirlwind. It was one Jacob deceiving his dad about a birthright or a blessing. It wasn't about the death of a child. But now the, he sowed to the wind, but a whirlwind's coming back where he has 10 of his sons deceiving him and breaking his heart for 22, next 22 years, he's going to believe that Joseph is dead. 
So boy, when, when the Bible says you, so do the one who reap the whirlwind. Look at this whirlwind. He is getting just plummeted with a whirlwind. But either way, in um, verse 32, then they sent the tunic in many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Uh, do you know whether it is your son? They won't say Joseph. <laughs> I think they're probably feeling guilty. Is this your son's tunic or not? We found this piece of cloth. It sort of interests us, so we picked it up. And then as we thought about it, it looks sort of like, you know, that son of yours, you know, his tunic. What do you think? And of course it was, and he recognized it immediately because it was a very unique garment. Of course it was easy to, easy to recognize. And it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is is torn to pieces. So Jacob just seems to come up with the, the scenario. Oh man, an animal killed him. And Jacob told his tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave. The word grave here is that Hebrew word sheol. And it's the first time it's ever used in the Bible. And we know about Sheol, right? The holding place for the wicked and the righteous. And we can talk about that more later. But anyway, he went, I'm going to go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. Well, Lord, thank you for your word tonight as we meditate on these things and continue just to Say, Lord, do a, do a deeper work of grace in us, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Let us be the people of God that touch your heart always. Hmm.